Hello, Julian. Hello, Mike. Hey, Mike, how do you go from almost getting into vet school the first time, failing, getting in the second time, to then becoming a double diplomat, orthopaedic surgeon and opening your own referral practice? I don't know, but I know somebody who's done exactly that. His name's Andy Moores and he's waiting in the waiting room. Let's get him in. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Hope. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. You want us to introduce Andy Moores, orthopaedic surgeon, and you want me to go straight in with the question. Gets it out of the way. We sometimes ask this, Andy, a bit later on, but I think it's an uncomfortable question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, it is. You're picking it up. first. No, oh, jeez. Okay, in that case, Andy, a lot of our listeners around the world ask us to ask this particular question, and I'm really not sure why, because it blows things wide open and it's very controversial. But well, there's a lot um, of interest in it, Mike. I'm sorry, there's a lot of interest in it. People, yeah, they, I mean, they like to know. But people like reading about celebrities too, don't they? In a way, Andy is a celebrity. Okay. Andy, it's relevant. It's right. Re- All right, that's fine. Okay, I'll ask the question. Oh, sorry, Andy. Andy, what our listeners really want to know is, amongst all the things that we're going to talk about, orthopaedics and skiing or snowboarding and new clinics and all of that sort of stuff, what they really want to know is, what's your favourite bread? My favourite bread? Yeah. Only one answer to that because my wife is yeah in the last couple of years like a lot of people she started baking her own sourdough so I can't say anything other than my wife's sourdough. Fantastic, if fantastic, you, good one. If you did say something other than that, what would happen? I would probably find a knife through my heart in the middle of the night. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I saw a shadow move in the background. Then <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we heard this collective gasp. Yeah, yeah there was definitely You're like a Allison's what. it's genuinely very good so that is usually what i eat bread wise and i'm a big bread fan i I had a reputation at university for being someone who could eat a loaf of bread a day really yeah i would just stand by the toaster toasting bread all night long what did you have on your bread or your toast always marmite okay so where did you go to fancy a slice of bread and marmite now Oh, I'll so make one. I'm not talking to you. I'm asking Andy Moores where he went to college. Bristol. <laughs> Bristol. Long, long time ago. Not far enough north to get into bread or toast and brown sauce. Oh, no, definitely not. Bristol's more clotted cream and jam on your, on your toast. No, and, and, yeah, not on your toast. <laughs> <laughs> Are you not listening? Does your wife make scones as well? No, she doesn't. But, you know, my son started making scones, or well, he's made a couple of batches of scones, which were surprisingly good. Yeah. Um, I have absolutely zero baking interest at all, other than eating. The eating's good. You think, I do a lot of baking. I must admit, I've got a sourdough ferment on the go at the moment. What, I'm, what I've really got into recently is making bao buns. They're very light. Bao buns, B-A-O buns. They're a very light steamed bun for uh, oriental cooking. Yeah, very good. Like dumplings and what have you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're great, they're great. But Mike's tussing at me because already I've taken you off the subject and I said <laughs> what we won't do, what we won't do is go 
on and on about my baking when actually it's your show today and we want to know firstly Bristol University that's great you, you almost didn't get in though did you you almost didn't become a vet tell us about that yeah sure so I'm actually quite proud as a student to have been the student in my year with the worst possible a I think I had the worst a level grades in the year I was very lucky I was scraped into vet school by the skin of my teeth I was very fortunate that at the time I was applying, Bristol were expanding their numbers. And so when I failed my A-level offer, I think I was offered, and it was a good offer as well, I think it was A-B, or A, no, it was A-A, the offer was A-B, and I got A, I got A-B-B, which is a complete failure, isn't it, for getting into this? It's pretty much a fail, yeah. But yeah, I was very lucky. Bristol said, take a year out, come back next year and we'll take you in. So yeah, I was really fortunate. I was a very average student at school, at, well, at school and at vet school. And to be honest, I got through vet school by the skin of my teeth as well, because a lot of it didn't really interest me very much. I was, I, my, uh, there, there were several stories about, yeah, going to animal husbandry exams in the first year after the last night of the bar at Churchill Hall in Bristol. And, and really not putting enough effort into the exam. And, uh, and yeah, I, f- I failed my first year as well. So I had to go back for resits in my first year. I basically enjoyed Bristol too much. And it's uh, my academic career suffered. But actually I was asked to speak to some Surrey vet school students not that long ago about my, my career. And I like to bring up this aspect of my uh, education because now I'm by all accounts doing pretty well. I've got a couple of diplomas in orthopedics and surgery and what have you, and lots of papers published and all that sort of stuff. And it's purely because it's purely because I found something that I really enjoyed studying. So I found my passion. And my passion was surgery and orthopedics in particular. So my clinical years when I got out to Langford, we started learning uh, surgery from obviously the great Professor Holt who later became my later became my residency supervisor as well so I was very fortunate to have him as a residency supervisor and uh, and obviously I was also being taught orthopedics at that time the only textbook that I read cover to cover during my undergraduate years was Hamish Denny's textbook of orthopedics brilliant Uh, stuff yeah yeah the old paperback version published by Blackwell yeah absolutely and uh, so I found this subject that I absolutely had a passion for and was able to excel at and until I found that passion I wasn't really excelling in anything I, I, this is the message I like to pass on to the undergraduates of today is that you've got to find what it is that you really love and concentrate on that subject because then learning becomes easy learning is otherwise learning is just a chore isn't it otherwise if you don't really enjoy what you're learning it's a right pain in the bum Absolutely. Uh, if you don't, if you don't get joy out of it. Yeah. Actually, we're, talk, we're talking to Ian Ramsey, weren't we, just a while back, and he said his passion was reading through scientific papers. Yeah. And the first one he read just got him hooked, and he thought, "This is brilliant. I want to read as many of these as I can." But he never lost that interest. Yeah. So that's the key, isn't it? That's the yeah. fine what it is. And we're lucky. We're lucky. We've got very diverse. We've got a degree that we can use in a diverse way, a uh, number of ways. If clinical practice isn't your thing, find something else. That's the sort of message I like to pass on. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot then and double down on this. That's the advice that you're giving to current new vet students. So what advice would you have given yourself now, knowing what you now know? Is it the same? 
Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Find that passion. I lo- I'm lucky that I did find the passion. Mm-hmm. Maybe drink a little bit less in the first year. <laughs> so yeah, you would have ignored yourself. Things, then. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not go to some of the exams hungover. That's always a good tip, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be quite a good one. Has okay. been no deal. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think that's it, really. And then if you know what you like, just, yeah, keep doing that thing or keep trying to excel at that thing. So I went into practice and I knew straight away that I wanted to do surgery. So I spent a few years getting a surgery certificate. Mm-hmm. And then that wasn't enough. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe I can get a residency and got a residency and went back to Bristol. I did my residency training at Bristol. And then, yeah, the rest is history. Okay. All right. So. You, you've been chasing a lot of exams. Not recently. Okay. Back in the day. So do you feel more well, comfortable? They, they, they now have to make some more exams for you to do, don't they? That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mike. No, that's quite all right. I'm just wondering because very often doing exam after exam, extra exam and certificate after certificate, do you ever feel that you've made it or that you're there or that you are the person that you wanted to become? Yeah, I think when I, so I, sensibly or stupidly, I don't know which, did two diplomas. So I did the, I was lucky to be in a position to do the, it doesn't exist anymore, but you used to be able to do the RCVS diploma in orthopedics. Mm-hmm. I did that at the end of my residency. And then I thought it'd be, and then a year later did the ECVS diploma. And they both have very different syllabuses. They both, one's, one, one syllabus, the ECVS one is very well defined if you can learn one textbook at the time it was called slatter and four i think it's four years maybe five years of literature if you can learn that you know you're going to be fine it's a tough ask but if you can learn it you're going to be fine whereas the rcvs diploma was like orthopedics that's it one word human veterinary any year (laughs) just orthopedics so they were very different exams, but I stupidly went through both of them. But I think when I got my E, certainly when I got my ECVS, which is the second one, I had absolutely zero inclination to do any more. Right. At that point, and that was enough. It sounds like enough. Yeah, it was. It really was. Yeah. So, have you go back and do orthopedics again? God, obviously. But would you do anything else? Any other aspect of veterinary surgery? Do you feel that? orthopedics is enough for you or would you like to go back and do vascular surgery next life or there were definitely aspects of the soft tissue side of the my training program at bristol was an ecvs training program it was it was a soft tissue and orthopedic training program it was Mm -hmm. by orthopedics just the way bristol was set up at the time so i did about two-thirds orthopedics one-third soft tissue but there were definitely aspects of the soft tissue side that I loved but actually when I look back at the soft tissue side the things I really liked were actually still involved bones <laughs> mandibulectomies and maxillectomies and things like yeah. that yeah. And there was always a sort of a theme running through what I enjoyed you basically like power tools don't you Andy that's the yes I do yeah. so yeah. power tools and carpentry rather than plumbing yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> plumbing is Peter Hall's territory and he would, and he was the master. He was. Um, he is. He was phenomenal. Yeah, the Peter Holt Award that's given each year to an inspiring member of the Association of Veterinary Soft Tissue Surgeons is in the shape of a urine drop. Yeah. Are there any 
Are there any operations that you really like doing? I'm angling towards elbows. Yeah, that's a difficult subject, isn't it? I do really enjoy elbow arthroscopy still, which is a very simple, straightforward procedure. But the problem with elbows is that a lot of elbow cases, there isn't a good surgical solution. I have done elbow replacements in the past. And uh, yeah, as a profession, we still haven't found an elbow system that really works well. I One of the things I really enjoy doing is hip replacements because hip replacements do work really well and can give a dog a completely new, a complete new lease of life, which is fantastic. But we haven't got there yet with elbows. And I don't think there, there are a few new systems out there in development that might be on the market in the next few years. But to be honest, I think we're going to struggle to find a good elbow system. Why, why do you think that is? It's, it comes down to a number of things. You got It's a three-bone joint, obviously, which makes it a little bit more complicated. It's a hinge joint rather than a ball and socket. A ball and socket is easy to replace. Mm. The hinge joint is more difficult because you need to create a hinge with just the right amount of sloppiness. Yeah, if it's very rigid, all the forces are on the implants and they will loosen. If it's too sloppy, it's going to dislocate. So it's, it's actually a very difficult joint to mirror with implants. You could say very similar towards a knee joint then, surely. Yeah, 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 you could say that. And to be honest, I haven't got any experience of knee replacements, but the knee replacement system that is available for dogs is arguably more successful than the elbows. Right. I guess you know, the elbow is a little bit disadvantaged because you, the elbow is taking, I guess, around about 60% of the dog's body weight, whereas the, in the hind limb, it's more like 40. Yeah. Well, I guess each hind limb is more like 20%. They, they struggle in people as well. Elbow replacements in people are problematic, although the forces are very different in people. The main issue is having someone be able to carry a suitcase. It's the, the systems have to deal with tensile rather than compressive forces. Yeah. And with a great deal more pronation and supination, yeah, more angulation, isn't there in the elbow with the, the stifle joint? Yeah, absolutely. That was something I was looking at earlier on today, which I, I thought was uh, would be interesting. The thumb. If the thumb. Talk, if you're going to talk about joints, and, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Okay. So, is the thumb a medial or a lateral organ? A medial. Julian. Certainly, for our quadrupeds, it's medial. It's an anterior organ, isn't it, in humans? It's lateral in humans. Anterolateral. Yeah, anterolateral, because it's based off the diagram that was done that shows the human standing with his palms towards you. Therefore, the thumbs are on the outer periphery of the, uh, of the body, and therefore lateral as opposed to medial. This is interesting, isn't it? It goes back to what you mentioned, Julian, about pronation and supination in that we can, you can have your elbow in, our elbows can remain in the same position, but our thumb can be medial or lateral. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I guess it depends on how you draw the picture as to how it's going to appear. Yeah. yeah. But it's, yeah. it's the anomaly there, though, is it's still classed as the first digit, as is the big toe. Yeah. As is the dew claw on a dog. And yet, if it's lateral or anterolateral, it should be the fifth. But there yes. we go. But we're talking. <laughs> we're, I think we've probably we're lost half our audience tonight. at this stage, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I heard veterinary was good and they were going to pick up this new practice. They're talking about 
thumbs. That, that's a load of pollocks. <laughs> Little Latin joke for you there. Is it Latin or Greek pollocks? It's la- uh, Latin, isn't it? Castor and pollocks. The, uh, you, you've lost me. I don't have a classical education, I'm afraid. It's a scientific name for the thumb. But there are also two twins. That, and they are Greeks, sorry, Castor and Pollux. The Roman equivalents were uh, Romus and Remus, founders of uh, Rome, reared by the She-Wolf. But Castor and Pollux were the uh, Greek, I believe. If someone's listening to this and they think it's a load of Pollux, then um, please if, sit in and tell me. But <laughs> if, I I, we've lost it. Andy, let's, get, let's get them back. Let's get them Andy, back. guess what's going to go in the cutting tin tonight? <laughs> <laughs> the producers are going to cut this little off. Everything Julian says goes out. There we go. That's out as well. Yeah, let's see. Can we keep Mike and Andy on track? Yes. <laughs> All good. Let's stuff. give it a go. I'm anxious to, to get on to Andy's new practice because actually I'm really excited about that because it's pretty close to me and I didn't refer lots of stuff to Andy. But uh, you were working uh, fairly close by anyway. I'm in, uh, I'm in West Sussex in Storrington and uh, you were at a practice, multidisciplinary referral practice near us. And the only thing we used to refer to them were orthopaedic ops to you. So we're, we're quite pleased that you're not there anymore and you've moved somewhere closer to us because it's easier. Thank you for referring. That's brilliant. Always appreciated. Uh, t- tell us about it. How did the idea come to you and who yeah, you've I mean, gone in with and uh, what's it all about? Yeah, no, the idea started, actually the idea started a long time ago when we were looking at how we could expand Anderson Moore's. I think we were incredibly good at using the space we had efficiently and we used to do a huge amount of work in actually quite a small building but we were always thinking we're always thinking okay how can we what can we do to get more space or to yeah expand the practice and one of the ideas we talked about for a long time never implemented it but we talked about was having a standalone orthopedic clinic basically moving the orthopedic clinic off site and there were various reasons for that it's the obvious service to be able to do that it's a it's an easy to serve it's an easy service to run as a sole service because you're not reliant on medics or images or too many other people you can basically run the service yourself so the idea you know, this goes back to sort of 2014 2015 we were thinking about doing this myself and my business partners we never did and then things, events took over. We ended up selling Anderson Moore's to Pets at Home in 2016. And and that was all good. That was all fun. Mainly because Pets at Home really did leave us alone. They didn't really interfere very much. Uh, and we continued to run Anderson Moore's as we always had run Anderson Moore's. Same people, same style. And that was all good. And then obviously, you guys will know that Pets at Home sold their entire referral portfolio to Linnaeus at the was it I think it was the was it the end of 2020 I think it was the end of 2020 yeah and then Linnaeus obviously are much more of a corporate beast than pets at home were they were a very different group of people to work with and work for various reasons work became a little bit less a little bit quite a bit less fun and uh, that's when I started rethinking about doing the standalone orthopedic thing and at the same time, so quite soon, only a few months after Linnaeus came on board, my one of my old business partners, Richard Hoyle, Davina Anderson's husband, quit. 
and we ended up having a little chat in the car park as he was leaving on his very last day and I said we we talked about that standalone orthopedic clinic what do you reckon should we do it and he was up for it and I was up for it and I left Anderson Moores a few months later that was this is about two years ago now so it's been two years in the making I left Anderson Moores I spent most of the last year locoming around uh, all over the place and uh, now we are imminently about to, uh, to get the clinic open. I'm guessing by the time this goes out, it will be open. So yeah, it will be open from May 23. That's brilliant. That's it. The process, it's been, there's been lots of little things. Finding the right site was really fun after a while because we'd seen so many sites that didn't really work and there was, or, or had either fallen through or didn't work. So actually getting the right site and signing the lease, that was a big moment of, that was really yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Getting the builders in and seeing the builders kick off, that was brilliant. And now seeing how things have progressed over the last few months is just amazing. Because the I go up there once a week, once every 10 days or so, just to see what's going on. And there's always a change. There's always a change. I was up there a couple of days ago, and it, it now actually looks like a clinic. You know, all the, the, the fitted cupboards are starting to be fitted. The theatres have got mm-hmm. down. So, yeah, no, it's moving on really nicely. Fantastic. So we're going to have staff um, yet? Yeah, we got so we got so myself and one other surgeon, one of my ex-residents from Anderson Moore's guy called Chris Jordan. He's coming back from the States to work with us. He moved over there. He moved over to Canada actually about four or five years ago and subsequently moved to the States. So he's been working in North America for a few years, but he's keen to come back. So he's coming back. We've got an excellent head nurse called Emma, who's starting. She's ex-Anderson Moore's. We've got a, a few, a handful of other nurses who are starting as well. As one of the difficulties in terms of staffing is with the real uncertainty about knowing how your caseload is going to develop mm-hmm. and, and knowing what staffing level to start with. Because obviously, we, this is costing a fair chunk of money. As mm-hmm. soon as we start paying people, it's going to cost a whole lot more money. Absolutely. And so, we're going to start with a relatively small team. Hopefully, obviously, the caseload does develop and then we can increase the team as we as we get bigger. Yeah. And what sort of kit do you have for MRI, CT, interventional? Yes, definitely. Obviously, but I think CT is essential for orthopedics these days. Mm. And uh, yeah, so we've got CT going in. No MRI. We don't really. I'm not. We're not planning on offering a spinal service. I was going to uh, say, unless you're doing uh, neurology, that then MRI is less useful, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's a big. It's a big cost. It's got a big maintenance cost. So it takes up space. And I just don't think we'd get the use out of it. The emphasis is going to be very much on orthopedics, keeping things simple. Yeah, elect, mostly elective orthopedics, because obviously that's mostly what that's the bulk of the orthopedic work. And what I call healthy fractures. The condylar fracture that's, uh, yeah, the spaniel that's run around and fractured his elbow, brilliant, come on in. The multi-trauma RTA that's got a whole host of other problems. To be honest, you are better off going to a multidisciplinary site where you've got medics and other people who can look after the more serious issues. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That sounds, sounds amazing. You must be so excited. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's like I say, it's just a few weeks away now, so it's getting very real. <laughs> and I'm just petrified. I'm petrified we're going to miss some completely essential yeah. piece of kit or some essential drug and we just start seeing cases like, oh, no, we haven't got that. <laughs> uh, we didn't get any syringes. Oh my goodness, how could we have forgotten that? There'll be, some, there'll be something, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we've 
you've had this sort of debate on veterinary outbreaks before of corporate versus independent practices and the pros and cons of each. From, from your graduates' point of view, no doubt about it, corporates are a good first practice to be in. For those yeah, of us who are slightly longer in the teeth of the profession, corporates can be, I think, quite stifling. And I say that as someone who sold his own practice to one, I, and I do feel that my clinical freedom has been restricted quite a lot. And I'm getting the impression that that's really the thing that, that, that made you decide, is it, to go back to independent? Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't, uh, to be honest, if we were still owned by pets at home, I imagine I might still be at Anderson Moores. Mm -hmm. But the uh, the more corporate side of things just didn't work with me. There was a whole tier of middle management that, from my perspective, weren't really engaged in the business or with me. And uh, yeah, I couldn't to go somewhere. I had to do something. I, I wasn't going to stay there. And the obvious thing, I didn't really want to walk, work for another referral center either. So the obvious thing was to start up again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is very much plan A, which has worked out. I think plan B would have been to just chuck a load of orthopedic tools in the back of the car and drive around. Certainly yeah. yeah. <laughs> the peripatetic stuff. But th yeah. then quite often you're, you're out of your comfort zone in terms of what you have around you and you can't take all the kit or if you, do, you, you, suddenly, you suddenly find something is missing. I know I went around to a friend's house to do a friend's practice to do a cruciate op a while back and said, okay, where are your drapes? And he handed me this thing that was about that sort of size and said, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not going to work. Not going to work. Yeah. 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 No, I remember those days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The tiny drapes. It's interesting, isn't it? I was at the London Vet Show last year talking to lots of people, and it does seem, it does genuinely seem like there's a lot of people starting up independent practices. There's a real movement towards it. And I, not just in referral sector, but I'm thinking GP yeah. as well. There's a very, there, there does seem to be a, a new tide of independence coming to the forefront, which I think is a really good thing to see. I think so. I think so. I shouldn't say that. And I hope no one from IVC is listening. If they are, lovely. Love working with you. <laughs> Who is that, Julian? ICVS? ICVS, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a little uh, a little nod there to the raptured spleen, our good colleagues on Absolutely. social media. <laughs> their own brand of corporate, ICVS. There we go. And, Andy, for a long time, you were... I was going to say associated with, more than associated with, you you, you headed up the uh, the BVOA, didn't you? Oh, I'm still... Yes, I'm, I, years and years ago, I was the education chair. So I basically mean I set up around the meetings. Did that for a few years. But more recently, I am... I've become vice chairman. I mean, it, it's the shoe into chairman. So you, you get elected vice chair and then you get shooed into chairman two years later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm very much involved. And that's been brilliant, actually. It's been really good fun. We uh, we do a couple of meetings each year. We do a spring meeting in April as an autumn meeting, usually in October, November time. And the, the big news this year, actually, is that it's our 60th anniversary this year. Oh, wow. So we've got a big meeting in, uh, in London mm. at, at Tower Bridge, at the Hotel Tower Bridge with a whole load of social events uh, on HMS Belfast one night, various other things going on. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be a really good event. So any listeners out there want to come along to the BVRA meeting, get on the website. <laughs> and sign up. 
Well, 40% of our listeners are in America, and uh, half of those are non-vets. But they're welcome they to. They may not. They may not want to come, but they're welcome, are they? They're all Excellent. welcome. So come talking, on. We're, come. Julian, we're talking orthopedics here. They're not fussy. <laughs> come on, come all. <laughs> And, and, but also another little plug it'd be, again if there are any younger members of the profession listening who are interested in orthopedics and particularly female members then also please do sign up it was one of the great things about the last few meetings i've been to is that there's a yeah orth- orthopedics is traditionally a very male dominated part of the profession and it does seem that's starting to change we are getting more and more female members and more and more younger members as well and I think that, that, clearly that's a really good thing as well. And it'd be great to see more. It's a very welcoming organisation and the meetings are a lot of fun. And not only, yeah, there's clearly there's an educational component to them as well, but there's a huge social component to them too. That sounds great. Mm. You say there's a shortage of females and younger ones uh, in the orthopaedic profession, the orthopaedic specialty branch of the profession. And that, that's extremely odd, isn't it, though, considering that uh, what we're heading towards 90, 90% roughly of the new grads are female. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, was trying, I was desperately trying to think of some sort of joke along the lines of, you must have been devastated when the two male students this year that graduated from all of the uh, UK colleges declared an interest in cardiology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't no, think it is like that, isn't it? It does seem... Yeah, it pretty I much, mean, it is it much is. like that. Pretty much is, yeah. When I was at the RBC... Yeah, that it was extraordinarily female dominated. And you can see why as well, because you I was sitting on undergraduate selection interview panels, and these these A-level students rock up. And by and large, the the 17-year-old female students are a lot more confident and they uh, present themselves a lot better generally than most of the male students at that point. And so you can see why they, there is this selection bias. And I think, and yeah, it's not just selection bias, is it? I think there's a bigger application bias as well from the female side of the profession. Yeah. But, but, it, no, but I say it's changing, yeah. But so traditionally that wasn't, you didn't necessarily see that at the orthopedic meetings. There were a handful of females there, but it's not necessarily much more, many more. And that is starting to change, which is good. And do you think generally in the profession there is... Uh, as much of a move to specialise as there was. So it seems to me that, that there isn't quite that perhaps hunger uh, as there used to be in, in wanting to, to get out of your comfort zone having qualified. Yeah, I don't know. There's certainly, that's interesting, isn't it? A lot of the universities talk about day one skills and what their undergraduates need to go out into the world with. Mm. And, and it's very different to what I went out into the postgraduate world with. So, yeah, orthopedics, orthopedic procedures is definitely off the curriculum. Um, yeah. You're expected to be able to do an orthopedic exam, but that's pretty much as far as your orthopedic clinical teaching goes these days, I think, at most of the universities. Yeah. So, and I'm, I only know about orthopedics. I'm sure it's a similar story for other disciplines as well. But the undergraduates are certainly, I think, going out into the world with less specific skill set, which is why, which is why the postgraduate courses, the immediate postgraduation courses that the corporates are running, are a good thing. And the emphasis on development in that first year or two out of university is obviously critical. And we do see, and I see 
referrals of things from some of the sometimes from the younger members of the profession that you think actually why are you referring this why are you not dealing with this and there is a I think there is a certain lack of confidence in some aspects of the of that younger profession but equally there are lots of courses that these younger vets can go on there's a huge amount amount of orthopedic cpd out there and and i think there's a lot of people doing that sort of middle tier studying a lot of people doing certificates and getting advanced practitioner status and all that the but you're right i think maybe there is fewer there's not fewer people going towards specialist status maybe there's less desire amongst the general vet population i don't know when i was interviewing or when i was advertising for residency posts at anderson moore's it was still incredibly tight incredibly popular we'd have we'd have 50 60 applicants for one residency position um really so there is a huge market there's still a market out there for these positions in a fair chunk of that to be fair was from outside the uk though yeah which is interesting but i do feel that some people i think some vets feel that residencies are too difficult and I don't, I don't mean from an academic point of view I mean from a practical lifestyle point of view and yeah. don't pick them up for that reason maybe if they've been out a few years they've got a half decent salary there's going to be a pay cut involved if they do a residency. I, was just about, I was just about to say actually that I think that's part of it isn't it that we're going from I don't know when you qualified. I qualified in 96. I think you were probably around that. 96 as well, yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a profession then that you were fully immersed in. That was your life. And clearly life has moved on. Things have changed. And we think very much more about a work-life balance that that we certainly didn't have when we first qualified. Yeah. But I don't think think that was as much of a problem for us then as it would be for us now. And certainly for the grads. I think the level of commitment outside the working day has become more of a challenge hasn't it it's definitely become much more of a nine-to-five profession hasn't it or maybe yeah. maybe not nine-to-five but certainly most i think most vets these days younger vets don't want to do out of hours no it finishes at the end of the working day you're not a vet anymore until the next day or the next exactly day. and obviously the profession is set up to accommodate that in most areas but yeah no, i think you're right Julian. When I graduated, when you graduated, you, it was expected that you would do out of hours. And actually, at times, it was a little bit stressful. But, uh, but actually, that, that was the job. It was exhilarating as well. It was inconceivable. I've done five days on call straight. Yeah, but it was inconceivable that you'd be a vet and not do out of hours. And actually, yeah. I think a lot of the, from my personal experience, I think a lot of the sort of resilience that you build and a fair bit of experience that you build comes from dealing with situations out of hours when you maybe don't have the same support that you have within that. Yeah, you just uh, have to get on with it. And that's not necessarily a good thing for the patient. Maybe the situation for the patient is better these days, but the situation as a, from a personal development point of view, I think working out of hours was incredibly useful. Hmm. Yeah. Talking, about, talking about personal development, and uh, you mentioned CPD a moment ago there, Julian. I've come across some CPD, and I don't know if Andy has. Andy, have you come across 60-second CPD? It rings a bell. Does it? Does it? Does it? (laughs) Our regular listeners will know, of course, that we do strive to improve the knowledge and the learning of our listeners and our continual 
professional development section, 60 second CPD, otherwise known as CE for our American listeners. So you've come across this uh, 60 second CPD then, have you, Andy? I have, yes. Do you fancy the challenge? Okay. Yeah. How rigid is the 60 seconds? Oh. (laughs) We have snipers aimed through your living room window. If you go more than two seconds beyond, they get an ear at least. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, there's a timer. Oh, there's a timer there, and you should be able to see that. I don't know if I can turn my light away a little bit so that it shows up. There we go. That's a little bit better, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, excellent. So you're up for this, are you, Andy? I'm up for this. So what's your subject going to be, and you can't have anything to do with orthopaedics? <laughs> the subject is early cruciate disease. Okay, that's by, right. I think by that's that, I mean, religious, isn't it? So that'll do. By that, the, the stable cruciate before there's any instability. Not the ones at 8 o'clock in the morning? No. And, and not, like, not like yours, Julian, and not like mine? Right. Okay, fair enough. So early, early cruciate disease, yes? Yes. Okay, Andy, here we go then. So, Andy Moore's 60-second CPD on early cruciate disease, starting now. Okay, so we all know how to diagnose the cruciate with a full rupture. That's easy. The knee's unstable. The early cruciate disease cases before there's any instability is a whole lot more problematic because there's no cranial draw or tibial thrust to guide you. So how do you diagnose them? First of all, they present in a very typical way. They'll invariably show lameness specifically on rising after rest, usually when they've done a longer walk that day. On clinical examination, they won't have any instability. They might have a little bit of thickening of the stifle, but they'll invariably have pain on stifle extension. When you do that, make sure the hip's slightly extended so you're not stretching the hamstrings and causing pain that way. If you take an x-ray, you'll see effusion. You might see early osteophytes depending on the uh, on the stage of the process. But if you see these things, don't treat it as arthritis. It's not arthritis, it's cruciate disease. The dog needs surgery. It doesn't need NSAIDs and it needs specifically a TPLO because that's the only surgery that will salvage the ligament and the menisci. There we go. There we go, and you were worried about it being rigid. That was fantastic. There we go. That was really good. That seemed very pretty flexible to me. Mm, yeah, yeah. I like the bit about not stretching the hamstrings. Yes, that's good. That's yeah. good. Yes. And I love the bit about TPLO being the only surgery that will actually salvage the, the cruciate. In other words, if we do a TPLO in these early cruciate injuries or disease progressions, then the cruciate will likely not go into full rupture. Would you be kind enough enough on behalf of all of our listeners who are not medical or veterinary in explaining what a TPLO is, please? So TPLO stands for tibial plateau, and that's the joint surface. That's the slope of the joint surface on the tibia leveling osteotomy osteotomy means cutting the bone so the difference between dogs and people is that the tibial plateau in people is more or less level in dogs it slopes backwards Mm -hmm. so when a dog has cruciate problems that slope means there's a lot of stress on the cruciate ligament and we can relieve that stress make the stifle if the stifle is unstable we can make the stifle more stable by leveling off the tibial plateau, making in effect making this the canine stifle a little bit more like a human knee, and that as I say, if the knee's unstable, that makes the stifle the stifle stable. But if you've got one of these early cases where the ligament's starting to tear but hasn't really 
progress very far, then it can mitigate the forces on the ligament and avoid, fingers crossed, the ligament tearing further. Fantastic. Really could understand that. Yes. You enjoyed TPLOs aren't a procedure that are done for, for human cruciate ligaments, are they? But because the tibial plateau is very different. Flat. The tibial plateau I, think is, I think it's worth pointing that out, isn't it? To, to yeah, yeah, yeah. viewers and listeners who aren't vets who say, well, I had a crucial rupture, I had a, an arthroscopic procedure and they pulled a bit of my hamstring through and strapped it to the side of my tibia, absolutely fine. Why don't they do that for my dog? It's a different structure, isn't it? Yeah, we don't walk around on all fours. Yeah, and the forces are very different. So actually, when we do, yeah, the typical dog has a typical plateau angle of between 20 and 30 degrees, and we usually correct it to about five degrees. The human typical plateau is about five degrees anyway. So it's inherently, so effectively, it's a very different scenario. And the other, the other aspect is you talk about surgery, Julian, in people, but actually most people with a cruciate rupture won't have surgery. They'll be treated with physio and a very guided rehab program and although we can do physio and rehab in dogs but we can't necessarily do it to the same extent that you can do it when you're actually explaining things to a person and exactly what they need to do Absolutely. and yeah. mike, mike and i are giggling because we've both done a, a cruciate ligament in and um we both have had very unguided physiotherapeutic repair uh, basically <laughs> just carrying on buggering about on skis for 20 years and nobody's going to get better <laughs> you have was it skiing that was it skiing that did it for both of you it was probably a mixture of skiing and ice climbing for me i think a rugby football and cross-country running was ice, ice climbing that well-known cruciate risk sport <laughs> well ice sliming and slamming into other ice slabs is probably a better way of putting it <laughs> okay yeah so there we go yeah. You enjoy your teaching, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I do. It came across when I asked you to explain that, because not all of our listeners would know what TPLO is, but it came across very well. So where else have you taught? So I, I did, immediately after my residency, I was a lecturer at the RVC for a few years. Right. And then since, and yeah, then I went into private practice. Mm-hmm. Since then, I've, I've taught all over the place. So I've done a lot of teaching for private companies, improve those sorts of companies in the past. AO, which is the uh, one of the big orthopedic organizations. Uh, uh, screw them. Sorry, that's a very <laughs> orthopedic joke, and I'll explain that. Uh, AO are a Swiss company who make high-precision bone screws and plates and things like that, if, unless I'm mistaken. That is correct, yeah. Well, that is almost correct, not quite correct. Okay. They, they You're are on the, the right thread. Yes. <laughs> AO themselves don't make the product. Do they not? Uh, so they, they are the sort of the holders of the intellectual property and the, sort of the organisation that comes up with the ideas and then they farm it out to a private company. I didn't know that. They, they pass them on a bill in tech and say, make one of those, would you? Yeah, probably. Cut a notch out, we don't need to tap it first. Yeah, it's probably Erdinger and Sons further down the valley that do all the uh, do all the metal work. Absolutely, they've got all the steel down there. So there's not your only interest, though, is it? If we're to go into all your interests, I think we probably ran out of time tonight. But uh, I couldn't help noticing in the little CV you sent us, you were interested in cars, making them, repairing them. No, driving them. Oh. Driving them. Yeah, no, I'm a bit of a. This sounds so corny. I'm a little bit of a Porsche fan. Mm. I've got a couple of old Porsches in the garage. Very nice. Now, what, what models? 
I've got a, a 25-year-old 911 and beautiful, beautiful. a 13-year-old Boxer Spider. Very nice. If you'd said 944, I probably would have hung up on it. <laughs> one of my one of my old ex-colleagues has a 944, which is a lovely. The 944 is a nice car. Yeah, they are. They're, they're, and they're, um, they're a pig to drive, and they're <laughs> nice. <laughs> or it's the one I drove was. Yeah. It was a bit, bit wrecked at the time. So, and did you take them off on tracks or? Uh, yeah, I have done. Yeah, the box store I have done. Yeah, quite a few times up at Goodwood and Castle Coombe, places like that. So that's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's scary as well because you're usually surrounded by drivers and cars who are a lot faster than I am. So it, yeah, I leave those. I leave, when I go to a day like that, I generally come away with my adrenal glands just going absolutely crazy. It is terrifying, isn't it? I, it is I've done that just once, and I had to have uh, four or five espressos to to get up to running speed myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the truth is, unfortunately, I don't probably drive these cars as much as I should do. They are very much <clears throat> they uh, yeah they don't come out of the garage enough. So how do you get so, to work uh, then? Hey, how do you get to work then? In a different car or by bike? All right, okay, you cycle oh, to work. Yeah, the the uh, I used to cycle to Anderson Moors most days of the week, at least probably two, at least three days a week to cycle commute. And the new clinic, one one of my uh, requirements for the location of the new clinic was that it had to be in a, a cycle commutable distance. Just about is just. So what what is a cycle commutable distance? It's about seventeen miles. Very good. Do you find the battery wears out after that on the bike or it's wear out? No, <laughs> I always say that just to, to rib my. I'm not a cyclist purely because I'm terrified. I go off off road, you know, a bit of mountain biking, but I got knocked off a few years back and never quite got nerve back. Yeah, that's not nice. I'm more of, I didn't hurt myself at all, but yeah. I got worried. Oh, so I've always there again, do you? Who, uh, I, I need to. I need you to come out with me, Mike. And, uh, I'm not riding a bicycle again. Back. I'm not riding a bicycle again. I've had it. That's finished. <laughs> well, that. handy. Come on then. Come round. Teach me how to ride a bike on the road again. I think we should. I'm going to maybe set up some uh, some rides from the new clinic. Get some, mm. get a posse going. Have a pedal. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds interesting. I'm going to change the subject completely, if I may. Yes. And I want to touch on something that so that our researchers threw up, and I hope you don't mind me asking you about this, Andy. But I know that the general call went out just over a year and a bit ago when Russia invaded Ukraine to help Ukrainian refugees. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you've done exactly that, have you not? Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. Yeah, to be honest, Alison, my wife, was the, the sort of the driving force behind it. But uh, yeah, very soon, I guess it was probably around about April time last year, very only a, a month or two after the invasion and when when the government was launching their refugee scheme Alison was very keen to to host a family and as as was I she was the driving force she organized it but we were both very keen and we sat down with the we sat down with our we got two boys who are 14 and 16 now so we sat down with them and talked it through and said what do you think do you think we should do this and we all agreed that it'd be a good idea we're lucky we've got a big house we've got the space and when the kid, when the boys were a lot younger, we had we had au pairs, French au pairs. We were used to having strangers, if you like, living in the house. Mm, right, which made it a whole lot easier, I think. But yeah, we Alison 
was in, got in touch with various Facebook groups and got talking to a family from Kharkiv right. and uh, they came over in May last year. So there's uh, the mother, Lana, and uh, two boys, Yarek and Andre, and uh, they've been with us since May. Wow. How are they getting on? They get, they're good. They're very good. A horrendous experience for them initially. Mm. And I'll never forget picking them up from Stansted when we did. It was in the middle of the night and they'd been traveling for, I think, yeah, 48 hours or so to get across Ukraine and then across Poland and then flight to Stansted. Jeez. And they were just absolutely devastated. They were broken completely. And obviously, yeah, they've left their husband and father behind. So it was a very traumatic and emotional first few days but they have settled in very well and uh, the two boys are in schools the older kid andre he's 14 he's the same age as our youngest mm -hmm. and uh, my kids go to a school in southampton called king edwards and uh, it's a fee-paying school and they've been just brilliant because they've given um, andre a scholarship oh which is amazing brilliant, brilliant. Uh, and uh, the Yarek's six, oh, I think he's almost seven now. His birthday's coming up soon. And he's in the local primary and getting on fantastically well. And uh, yeah, it's been great fun, actually. It's been really, it's been a lot of fun having uh, a six, a six going on seven-year-old in the house again, because it's been a long time since our kids have been <laughs> So yeah, this little terrorway. not being yours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. That's, it's like it's, it's almost like being a, a grandparent to find his mum. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. And how's the language? Are they um, are they learning? Uh, yeah, now yes. When they came over, the fourteen-year-old had very good English. He had done English at school. Uh, the mum had a little bit of English, so we could so we, enough to get by, enough to converse. And Yarek, the six-year-old, had no English at all. But they're all now. And Leona and Andre, the older one, are fluent. And Yarek is very good. He you can converse with him very easily. Yeah, it took a few it took a few months, but sure. they're good. They're good. Sure. So of the challenge course. for them now is moving on to the next stage, and uh, they're on housing lists to get local housing and all that sort of stuff to work out. Because uh, unfortunately, that uh, doesn't look like it's going to be ending anytime soon, does it? It doesn't seem to be. No, not at all. We we got rejected <laughs> by our Ukrainians purely because we're out in the sticks, we're in the middle of nowhere, and yeah. a family that we were thinking we would be lucky enough to get had no no car, no means of transport. How long did they stay with you for? Did they stay at all, Julie? No, 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 no. They 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 more or less saw it and said, "Oh, no, why? Not <laughs> <laughs> <Still> staying there." <laughs> Well, at least we assume it's because there's lack of car. It might just be they didn't. Maybe that's just maybe that's just a convenient excuse. <laughs> I think so. Yes. yes, he drove off. I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's wonderful, Andy. It really, it's really. Yeah, what an experience. Have you done? I, I, it has been an experience, and uh, at times it's been quite hard work. But certainly, mm. I certainly don't have any regrets. Admirable thing to do. Well done. Well done. We we have something to give you. Oh, I forgot. Not really give you, but present you with virtually because you've given us some wonderful CPD. Yeah. And, and this goes for our listeners and viewers as well. Indeed. Now, we get a, a CPD certificate for you. Wow. So it's um, a certificate of orthopedics and much more. And what we have is a bit of everything here. So there goes a 
bit of a fracture repair. Oh, wow. Captain multiple pelvic yeah. fractures. Yeah. And it's a 2CV. We knew you liked cars. Yeah. Do you know what? My first, my, my first car was a 2CV. Was it? Now, what sort? 2CV6. I've had a 2CV6. I've had a Diane and Dolly as well. Did you? Uh, yeah, I, I had two 2CVs. My first car and my, I think it was my third car were 2CVs. I got run over by a 2CV. I love 2CVs. They're fantastic. I got run over by a 2CV once. In fact, was, me, me and my four, of, four of the friends from the, uh, we were at college and the group of us were walking down the middle of a college road and uh, this maniac came up behind us and just drove over us. Wow. Did, did you hurt it? We did. We smashed the windscreen, <laughs> broke the windscreen wipers. The bonnet was caved in onto the engine. One of the wings fell off. One <laughs> of my colleagues went right underneath the car, literally ran over he'd it. Have, he'd have played Havocs with the kingpins. Well, no, I think he damaged. The, he did. He damaged the suspension. Um, yeah, we were all fine. Yeah. We were all okay. <laughs> One of my two CVs, I got a speeding ticket in my two CV once. It was from a camera. No, you didn't. No, no I did. No, you And I wrote no. to the police force mm-hmm. and I yep. said, I don't think my car can go that fast. <laughs> I think I think it was it was doing something like 60 and 50 or something. Oh, no. Um, I thought you were going to say 30 and, and, and they sent me the picture. Yeah. Sent me the photo and I framed yeah. it. Wow. And I, had this, I had this framed picture of my speeding two CV. So if, if, you, if you read the handbook for uh, for two CV, it says normal to sixty not applicable. Yeah, <laughs> your car within itself. Come on, get back onto the certificate. I got got pulled over in my two CV once. I was driving back from college one day, and uh, the, the windscreen wipers weren't working. They hadn't worked for a while, and the uh, someone had stolen the stereo because the door never locked. So I had my, my harmonica holder around my neck, and I was playing uh, a bit of Donovan. And uh, sitting right on the front of my seat. Stop now! Not stop now! It's getting worse. Out of the out of the window, scraping the windscreen with a squeegee on the M25. And I happened to notice this car going, take just matching me my speed. But I couldn't see it because my arm was in the way because I was wiping the windscreen. It was there for a while, and I thought, I'll see who it is. And I put my arm down. There's a policeman. <laughs> He'd been following me for about five ten minutes, and he just shook his head really depressed look at his face pointed at the hard shoulder and when i pulled over he said i'm not gonna write it up because no one would ever believe me just get off the motorway don't ever come on it again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so there's there's the two cv there's a, a fast car at uh, goodwood at the festival of speed I, 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 can't, I think it's a mclaren yeah i couldn't um, tell you actually. i'm not sure but there's now that's my favorite knee type there and i drove that one yeah so there's a few cars for you now there's i couldn't get any pictures of snowboarding because that's not a thing i do yeah but that's so there's a good example of how to break your anterior cruciate ligament yeah whilst yes. skiing and for Absolutely. the people that are listening and not watching that's probably best described as a back seat position it's a picture of a skier that is extreme flexion of the knee extreme mm. flexion of the knee and in fact you could just imagine a dining room seat that's been removed from the photograph because there is that skier and he's... I think it's more toilet position, isn't it? I I felt I needed one when I was doing that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, move on, Julian. You haven't seen how far below me the floor is. Yeah, Yeah, we can see it. It's Um, white. And what's that in the bottom there? 
And there's some well, sort of bizarre instrument. What's that? It's a homemade mandolin. And I only put that in because you listed one of your interests as music. Yeah, very much in the listening rather than creating. <laughs> uh, I wasn't sure. And we didn't touch on it. But just in case, it happened to be playing mandolins. I thought I'd put that on just in case. All good stuff. Andy Moore. Yes, but no. Andy Moore. So we've had CPD. We've had a certificate. I think it's time to see out the show. Have you got a reflection question for our listeners? A reflection question? Give me an example. Well, for CPD to qualify for the RCVS logging, you need to get a reflection, don't you, on the CPD you've learned. So any sort of reflection question on either on the 60-second CPD you gave us or or generally on orthopaedics or self-education, bread-baking, some sort of... It, it could be something along the lines of... Oh, I know. What, what? In fact, you mentioned it. You mentioned the reflection, what? which is when you're learning something, approach it, or do you approach it, as learning something because you have to or learning something because you want to? Yeah, but because you mentioned question. earlier. That's a cracking oh, that's question, deep, isn't but, it? But I, I like want to hear one from Andy. How about if think about how you're going to manage the next dog that you think has got stifle arthritis? Okay. 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 I'll take it to the vet. Good idea. <laughs> and then ask them to refer it to me. No problem it. at all. Absolutely. I think any vet, particularly in the south south of England here should be thinking about referring their patients, particularly, well, especially their orthopaedics, to Andy's new orthopaedic clinic, which is moresortho.com. Uh, yes. Moresortho.com. So you've got the, you've got a brand new clinic there with some of the best specialists to, uh, to look after your clients' patients. Andy, I think we've probably run out of time, I'm afraid. There is so much more we could cover. There's but we just so, so much more. Time. But we haven't got the time, so... It's been fun. It beholds me to say, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to, then don't forget to click like, share, tell your friends about it. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe, because it really does make a difference to us. And it means that we can pass on all the latest things and upcoming stuff to you straight direct into your inbox. But it makes a big difference to us, so please subscribe. So, Andy Moores, orthopaedic specialist, orthopaedic surgeon... Thank you very much indeed for sharing your life and an insight into your life with us this evening. And may your dog go with you. Thank you may your dog much. go with you. May your dog go with you. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers.